you are your dog's world and their dog is just waiting. They're waiting for you to pet them. They're waiting for you to talk to them. They're waiting for you to go outside with them. Listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. If you consider your dog a family member, then this podcast is for you. Let's celebrate the love and connection we have with our dogs. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. This is a place for us to connect in the joy of loving our dogs, and also a place where you know you're not alone in the difficult times or in the sadness of missing a dog that was an important part of your life. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 45 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. We have had a sweltering weekend here in Baltimore. That was a nice reminder that summer is coming. But the best part of the warmer weather is Penny getting more head out the window time in the car, because that is one of her favorite things in the entire world is to have her head out the window of the car, and she doesn't like it quite as much when it's so cold and windy out or raining. But this weekend has been perfect head out the window weather. Friday was National Rescue Dog Day, and I had shared Penny's photo, the first photo I ever took of her, from the day that my friend Mindy and I found her and rescued her from this alley in northwest Baltimore. And while all of our dogs have come from either a shelter or rescue situation, Penny is the only one that I physically found and rescued myself. So that was why I shared her story. I don't want to play favorites. Sometimes I think these national whatever days are a little bit much like National Pancake Day or whatever, but I do love the pet related ones because I love seeing and hearing everybody's different stories. And I think you're really going to love the story of today's guest, Tamara Tokash. Tamara brings a wealth of knowledge and a lifetime of experience. And I feel like this conversation is a masterclass in how to live your best life with your dog and have your dog be happy and healthy in mind, in body, and in spirit. Tamara doesn't just consider herself a dog trainer or a behaviorist. I love this term that she used, an ambassador to dogs, an unconventional dog advisor. She truly views each dog as an individual and encourages all of us to begin looking at things from our dog's point of view, because that is the moment that we will begin to understand them. So Tamara is going to share with us about her childhood experiences with dogs and when she decided to make her passion for dogs into a career. And what I think is really special and exceptional about Tamara is her continuous evolution and how she's always taking in new information about training and obedience and behavior and nutrition and health and wellness and how all of these things interplay to affect our dog's lives. And we can't just look at one thing in a vacuum. We have to look at things globally and wholly and holistically in that way. And so tomorrow will take us through this journey and what that has looked like for her. And she'll also share with us about the special dogs that have touched her heart along the way, especially the story of Sammy, who is a rescued laboratory beagle. 
And I've had a couple different episodes now that have touched on this topic of rescued laboratory beagles. And I'll put a link to those in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about this topic. And it's not something that was on my radar even just six months ago. And I am so grateful and feeling very compelled to share these stories. And so I think that part of Tamara's story is very special also. So now let's get started. I can't wait for you to meet Tamara Tokash. So we are here today with Tamara Tokash. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Erin. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. I have so many things I want to talk to you about. I'm very excited. I always love to start off by asking about your childhood experiences with animals. Because for instance, I never had a dog until I was 25 and it changed my (laughs) whole life. So I'm always curious to see when did dogs come into your life? Did you grow up with them? What did that look like for you? So I, you know, I, I don't remember life without a dog. I feel like I was born with a pack of dogs around me. Um, I feel as if it's just part of the fabric of my being, part of my DNA. So just a little backstory, my parents and my grandfather, they had a, uh, an English setter kennel on the property. Okay. And um, we had a, a nice size piece of property. And these dogs were just an, you know, an extension of who I was. And we had dogs in the house, uh, some of which that were the English setters and some that weren't. And um, just seeing my, my mom, my dad, my grandfather going out there and spending time with these animals, it wasn't just breeding and then hunting with them. It was everything in between. It was caring for them. It was playing with them. It was um, teaching them how to retrieve or flesh out a bird. And I just remember at a very young age, fascinated by them. And I would, I would follow them around. I would follow our neighbor's dog around. These, these were not our dogs, but our neighbors had free roaming dogs. And I remember just sitting under pine trees and feeding some of these dogs, any extra food that we had. And I have a memory of because my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers on both sides of my family were, um, they were, they had the organic mindset before the word organic was really coined. And so I had it, I had two different things going on in my life, which was I had this very good appreciation for fresh whole food. And I had this passion for dogs at a very young age. And I still remember when my parents would have the the kibble because because kibble way back when in the in the late sixties early seventies that was the beginning of kibble and I remember just looking at it in the bowls thinking oh that is that does does not look enjoyable and so I would take um, my one grandmother would make bone broth and chicken stock and she'd have all the fresh vegetables from her garden and I remember I would heat up the bone broth the chicken broth. And I would divvy it up over, you know, like 12 dog food bowls <laughs> and I would add it. So, you know, that was my early, my early years when I was, when I was just a child. And, and then after I got a little older, although we still had dogs in the, in the home and outside, uh, I, I had gotten my first dog. She was a Labrador retriever, Chloe, and I wanted to just do everything right. So I, I, I found the greatest 
food that was out there. And I, I tried to find the greatest vet and I enrolled her in um, obedience classes and nothing really felt right. If that makes sense. I, the food, although I was told from my vet and people in the, that I thought were in the know about food, that that food was the best. And there was a lot of harsh training techniques when I brought her to the obedience school. So I started just doing things my own way. And then I had this epiphany that, well, you know, maybe this is coming really natural to me. Maybe I can do something and I can put my own spin on it. So I kept enrolling in all of these obedience classes. And at the same time, I was at university pursuing a master's. And I just had this point in my life where I thought, there's a fork here. And I was kind of like Hermie, you know, on Rudolph Redner's <laughs> Reindeer. He would always be studying his his dentistry while he was really supposed to be doing his, making his elf, his, you know, Santa toys. And I would be at work or I would be doing my master's program, but I simultaneously have, you know, three books I'm reading about canine behavior and just anything about dogs. So I decided to start my own business and I was going to school, I was working and I started my own business. And, and then I was able to secure a position as an assistant trainer with this big dog training school. But back then there were that that's all they had were dog training schools or dog obedience schools. And I went, I was an an assistant trainer there for a couple of years, but there were aversive techniques there as well. So I decided to branch off, start my own business. And it was all about obedience and it, it was great. I, I volunteered my, by my services to clients for a year. And uh, then I created it officially where I would, I put a price tag and I had my, my rates for my clients. And um, for several years, it was just that it was obedience, 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 sit down, walking on a leash, come when called, stay, et cetera, et cetera. And it was all in home private. And it was, it was wonderful. And what was great about doing in-home private was that I had a very clear understanding of what the dog's life was on a daily basis, as opposed to, I also had a group class that I had offered at a building that I, that I had rented out. And I could see the difference in learning rates between the dogs that were, I was going into their home, training them one-on-one or training, really teaching the people because- that's ultimately what you do is you teach the people to teach their dogs, right? Versus the people that I had at my school that I had eight to 15 people in a class. And I I noticed very quickly early on that that wasn't working. That was not in the best interest of the dogs. So then I revamped my program to just offer in-home private. And everything is customized because every dog is an individual so, you know, I, I remember distinctly, I had six golden, golden appointments, six different dogs, they were all different towns and what have you. And I went through each appointment very differently. And it was because all eight of those golden retrievers were different dogs and also different people that were rearing them. Right. So that then over the years, you know, after every appointment, 
I would sit and I would reflect. I would go in my car and I would write, jot down little notes about our, our appointment. And it always came back to, but the 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 sitting, the walking on a leash, the greeting people at the front door, the the any anything outside with um with people, strangers, et cetera, cars, that really was a was a broader I needed to cast a broader net. And so then I took a deep dive into canine behavior. And I ended up traveling around the country. I would follow and study people and participate in seminars and conferences like Dr. Ian Dunbar, Patricia McConnell, Karen Pryor, um, Pam Reed, Suzanne Hetz. And these were these were people that were all new to the game basically back then because it was the beginning of the explosion of people really acknowledging that dogs had feelings and that they have emotions and that there's a lot more that they off that they can offer us other than, you know, just being a, another being in the house with us. So I, I, I did take that next step and I started incorporating behavior into my program because you can't, you can't isolate it. They're not mutually exclusive. You have to have, you have to acknowledge the behavior in order to deal with the obedience. And, and then I went more so in the direction of it wasn't so much obedience because semantically obedience always sounded to me very dominating, very authoritarian, very, you know, me master, you dog, you know, uh, this is how it's going to be. Right. I, I turned it more into a softer approach of manners. And then I went another step further, which was the training that was being offered at the time was not realistic training. And the people would bring their dogs to a training school and then the dogs would come home and it would be a completely different ball game. Right. Like they can't translate from this like sterile environment no. into their everyday real world. No, they, they can't, but precisely. And that's the benefit of coming into people's homes. And, uh, you know, I have a, a very detailed intake form on my website prior to people signing up for um, the initial consultation. And that gives me a very very good idea, very good sense of, okay, what am, what am I walking into here? What is, if I'm the dog, what is it like being in this, in this family? How many children are there? Are there no children? Is it one person? Does the person work eight, nine hours a day? Is the dog left alone? Is the dog in isolation? You know, there are all these different factors is, you know, what kind of food is the dog eating? And so that all comes together to create a, you know, a, a, a package of what am I, what am I dealing with and how do I peel these layers back? And so then I had obedience that then morphed into behavior. And then I had many clients with behavior, particularly fear or, and, or fear, aggression, behavior and, or fear, aggression, and anxiety. And I kept going back to what are these dogs eating? Because I, I, I've always been a proponent of, you know, making sure whatever goes in my body, it has to have a positive effect. And so if I, 
if I'm if I happen to eat something that's not that healthy, what are the ramifications? What are the consequences of that? How is that getting <laughs> metabolized in my body? Right. Right. I have definitely learned some of those things the hard way. Uh, <laughs> if I go, there's a, like a little coffee shop where I like to get my lunch. They have you know, salads and sandwiches, and they make this lemonade, and I love the lemonade. But I have found oh, no. I should not have the lemonade with my lunch because I will crash. Oh yeah. And you know, and I can't focus, and I almost get like that brain fog. You know, and yes. it's like I feel really good for a few minutes and then boom, you know, I'm like fighting to get through the afternoon. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I do think like, uh, as people, we have to be more aware of, you know, what we're putting in our bodies. And, and I love this idea that you're bringing, you know, to, to dogs that dogs, you know, are also impacted by what's going into their bodies. Well, yeah. And, and, uh, another part of when I, when I'm working with a client is, it requires the guardian to exercise a great deal of self-awareness as to what are the, what are their actions and how are their actions impacting their dog. And so when it came to the point where I repeatedly kept having these clients whose dogs had severe uh, anxiety, you know, um, fear, aggression, and or and or generalized anxiety. The common denominator in almost all of them was a subpar diet. And so then I had, after probably 15 years of doing this, maybe a little bit longer, I had this very unconventional approach to viewing dogs and helping their people help them, which was, I'm going to look at everything from a, a, in, an integrative, holistic perspective, which is I'm not going to just come in and teach your dog how to do a recall because everything else is going to impact that. And I want to know that your dog is happy and healthy that, you know, and and if I can be a, an active participant in that, my belief system is, is the way to go about doing that is we can't leave any stone unturned. So there's, there's the health and wellness of everything is not just is not just good nutrition. It's not just a really nicely mannered dog. And it's not just a dog that is kind of like bomb proof emotionally. And you can just, they can, you can bring them anywhere. It's everything together. And I, I do believe that that makes for a very happy, healthy dog. And so, yeah, so food is such a, a critical part of, of everything. And I think we've come to learn over the years, how it impacts all of us. And, and that, that, that really ended up happening with my dog, Chloe, the yellow lab that I was speaking about. She was probably about six, seven months old and she just, she was sick. There was no one, none of the vets I had, I had her at about a dozen vets. They couldn't (laughs) decide what was, or determine what was going on with her. And in hindsight, every time one of the conventional vets had said, listen, just bring her home, boil chicken and give her rice she kept getting better and it was just it was just one of those moments where i thought none of this makes sense i'm feeding her what i think is a good food and yet she's she's doing really well when i'm buying and cooking and feeding her this other food so that was she was the beginning of what brought me down the rabbit hole of nutrition canine nutrition mm-hmm. and then a few years later after i had transitioned her from this kibble to a whole food diet. I had adopted a a dog and he had 
um, he ended up having an autoimmune disease that was triggered by a vaccine. Uh And that was my, that's what catapulted me down another rabbit hole of, hold on a second, what exactly is going on with these animals, especially dogs, getting all of these vaccines? And so I I did another submersion with Dr. Gene Dodds and all of these different immunologists and Ron Schultz. And I was trying to connect the dots over time of, and I'm not anti-vax, I'm just let's give the dogs what they need and then let let really good food, but also a very healthy environment support our dogs. And uh, that's how, that's how I, you know, I, I live my life with my dogs. I don't ever ask any client to do anything that I don't do with my dogs or I haven't done with any of my dogs. And when we get into learning about how much of the immune system is based in your gut and mm-hmm. that there's like the gut brain access, like 90% yes. of our serotonin is made in our gut. And so when we're having problems with, you know, depression or anxiety that are affecting, you know, serotonin production, for instance, like how much of that comes from diet and nutrition and gut health. And, uh, and I, I totally geek out on, on all this, this stuff. And so, you know, I was so excited to talk to you about, you know, how all this interplays in, you know, our dog's behavior as well. It, it, it really does. And, um, you know, the, the other part of it is, is people are very resistant, um, many times to make that transition from, well, my vet or my breeder or my yeah. friend or my parents, they, they, they all say that this food, which is kibble, this food is the best food out there. And, and I, and if I do raw, which is what I recommend, but if I, and if I do raw, then my dog might die or, or they might get really sick. And so what I find, and this goes back to our discussion earlier about, you know, knowing you're dealing with people in order to help the dogs, you have to be able to work very well with people. Right. And um I find personally that be- especially because I'm in the home with them and it be- it does become an intimate kind of relationship in the fact that I know I know, you know, how is their is their house really messy? Is that going to be an element? So, you know, they and they share a lot with you when you're in their home. And I find that if you if you plant the seed of whole food in the terms of treats in the context of treats, because everybody likes to give their dogs little nuggets of this and that, right? If you just say to them or make a recommendation, why don't you swap out the milk bone for like whatever, a blueberry or something seasonal? They are resistant in the beginning, but they do see, they have to see evidence, right? They they have to see evidence and they they will see that their dog is more inclined to want the blueberry or want the piece of chicken or want, you know, the salmon or and then and then they're they're not they're not as hesitant to consider their changing their dog's actual meal to something healthy. I love that approach. I love that. Yeah, start with make it fun, start with treats, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you know, if you I'm always trying to tell people or not tell people, but just encourage people to see things from their dog's point of view. And I, I do have to remind myself when I'm, when I'm with certain types of clients that I also have to put myself in their shoes because me feeding my dogs, you know, raw meaty bones 
and you know, you know, whatever, you know, rabbit legs and this and that, they might be horrified to see that. So I have to put myself in their position. And if they're hearing a woman come into their home saying, feed your dog, I try not to say raw because that even that word makes people scary. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, you know, I encourage them try this food and that. Um, I, 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 I try to make it a little bit easier for them to, no pun on words, but to, to digest the, the, the topic that I'm talking about and, and going the route of treats seems to help them do that. And I mean, it is, you know, I just think back to when we got our first dog, I knew nothing about dogs. I was 25 and, you know, your whole life you've been seeing, you know, the pedigree commercials and, you know, you go to the store and I just thought that's what dogs ate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first time I heard about people doing a raw diet, I mean, my mind was just blown. I had never heard of this, you know, but it's like, it's not on TV or, you know, and and how we kind of learn these things just essentially from marketers who are trying to get us to buy their products. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but yes, I can imagine it, it blows people's minds sometimes when they're hearing this for the first time. Well, I, I think it's part of, um, it is, it is that cognitive dissonance where people do not want to believe that what they're watching on TV, what they're flipping through in a magazine or what they're scrolling through on the internet uh, what their vet might be telling them, what their breeder might be telling them. It's not the truth. And it's, I'm not, I'm not saying that the vets or the breeders are intentionally telling them something that they know is dangerous for their animals. They truly believe that it's, that it's good food because that's why they're recommending it. But the, 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 the best advice that I, I try to give people aside from all the, the obvious, you know, generic dog, dog tips is, you really need to use critical thinking skills. You really need to do your own homework. You, you, it, it's, it's imperative that you read between the lines, that you ask questions, and that you, 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 you have the courage to step out of the confines of this box that many people seem to find themselves in. And just like I was saying with the treats, it's not going to kill your dog if you just offer a couple of blueberries. Right. And it, it, and I think you'll see that there's, there's actually a, a reciprocal impact where you're, if I'm recommending somebody give their dogs blueberries and they give their dogs blueberries, then maybe that person will start eating more blueberries. And that person will have, will find that those polyphenols and everything in those blueberries are really beneficial to them. So while we're helping our dogs, we're also in turn indirectly helping ourselves or really, I, I like to look at it as they're helping us. Right. And, it, you know, it just makes me think like our human doctors are like begging us, right, to to eat less processed food and more fresh whole foods. And yet somehow, like in the veterinary world, it's the complete opposite. And, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, the only thing that's safe is this ultra processed pellet. And it's dangerous to, you know, give anything else or do anything else. And, you know, and, and you're like, how does this make sense? No, I know. I know. And, and, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. So I, when I first started out, I decided to, 
I had to keep my my travel radius to a certain limit, or at least I wanted to. And so what I did was I I, loc- I I contacted all of the local vets within my travel radius, and I gave them my background. I I showed them, you know, I I, I was a you know assistant trainer for two years. I attended Cornell Behavior Canine Behavior. I did this. I gave them all my credentials, and what that allowed and afforded me was that it helped give me the ability to be referred out by these vets. And it was a nice relationship where I was helping their patients and their, their, the the humans and the dogs, and they were helping their patients. And we had this nice relationship, but there were a few vets that I would see that were just closer to me proximity wise that I would interface with more often. And I remember from the beginning, when I started down this road of nutrition, they, they, they thought I was, I had lost my mind and I I knew that there was a disconnect where they were telling their clients one mode of thought. And then my clients would have the point with me. And I was telling them the entirely antithesis of what the, the vet had told them. But what I found over the years was, were those vets that were so adamant about feeding and recommending kibble and, and, and prescription ID and et cetera, et cetera, over a span of, I don't know, 12 to 15 years, what really made the difference was them seeing my dogs and them seeing my clients or their clients, patients, dogs that were being fed a truly species appropriate food and them scratching their heads saying, huh, those dogs are really healthy. What, what are you doing with those dogs again? Wait, and because one of my dogs, Sammy, my beagle, he lived to be 18. And he was fed ever since the day I adopted him, of course, um, not prior to me having him, but he was fed a whole food, raw diet. And he did not have any kind of chronic disease. He passed away from old age. And that that's my hope for every dog. And so, but I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is, is I, you can only say so much and people need to actually see the evidence. And I think people are starting to come around to see the evidence. And I, I do feel like, like you said, like you, it's, it's going outside of the box. It takes a certain amount of, of bravery and, you know, to be, to get a little, comfortable being uncomfortable (laughs) in the face of, and, you know, and I, it took me a long time to find a vet who I trust and who was on the same page as me. And I feel very fortunate, but I know Mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like, oh, we have to not tell our vets what we're doing or, you know, we don't want to get into it. Or, um, I do think, I do think it takes a certain amount of, of like courage and stuff to, to be able to do that. It's so funny that you said that because I, I've, I'm in the process of creating this, this new division of my business and it, it's built on three premises and it's courage, compassion, and critical thinking. Oh, wow. Now there's other elements to it, you know, choices. That's the other, that's the fourth C and, and curiosity. Right. And, but I, I do believe that you need those three main ones in order to make a difference in anything, right? But in, in in the realms of what we're speaking about with rearing a dog and what's the healthiest way to do it. And those three keep coming up. And uh, it, it does, it requires you to take a leap of faith, you know, just kind of like bite the bullet and just do it 
and see what's going to happen. And a, a lot of people that have crossed over to the raw feeding, they usually have gotten there out of, unfortunately, a very devastating situation. That's what happened with my dog, Chloe. Nothing was working. She was so sick. And ultimately, she lived to be 14 years old, very healthy. Aww. But were there bumps in the road? Yes. And and I, I think that's where some people are misguided. They think, oh, well, if I just feed my dog raw species-appropriate food, biologically appropriate food, they'll be so healthy. Nothing, they're, they're impervious. That That's not true. It's just it's like all of us, right? We're, we're trying to just take care of ourselves so that we can boost our immune system to help us or to help our dogs fend off whatever might be thrown their way. That's what I think, you know, I'm trying, I, I try to instill that in people without scaring them. I don't want them to get to that point. I don't, I have clients who have very young dogs for the most part when they call me and I don't want those dogs to be ill and sick or worse. I don't want those dogs dying at three or five years old. I want to spare them that that pain and suffering. And I know because I've been doing what I do and my research for so long that these areas, these three areas, um, really are are at the the heart of health and happiness and wellness. I love that. I just, I love that approach. And I'm so grateful to have you here to, to talk about that with us. Oh, thank you. So you mentioned Sammy. We have to talk about Sammy. Can you please tell us the story of Sammy? Because I love the story so much. Oh, so Sammy, he was such a sweet, sweet boy. And um, Sammy was a laboratory research beagle, a dog. And I had adopted him. He was almost seven he was one of the first laboratory research dogs in New Jersey that was in a legally facilitated program. And I was not looking to adopt. A, I didn't even know, Aaron, that there yeah. were such a such situations with these laboratories and experimentations. And I went to a beagle rescue and the woman said, oh, I, I know you're here to see this other beagle, um, but because of what you do, I, I really think you should consider these lab beagles. And I thought, oh, what a cute combination, Labrador and beagle. <laughs> right. And, you know, and I just, I love both breeds. And I thought, oh, this is gonna be so, such a sweet looking dog and great personality. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Um, these, this is a laboratory beagle. And I, I, I just remember I was so sick to my stomach the, the, that moment in time. And that's when I learned of the fact that, yes, there are still experiments that go on with, with all different animals, but in particular, when it comes to dogs, beagles. And, um, I met him, uh, the second I met him, I fell in love with him and, uh, I brought with them. I brought my son and my husband, we went, we, we, we met with him. He had never stepped outside. None of these dogs had never stepped outside the lab. And so he had never seen grass. He didn't know how to go up and down stairs. He had never, of course, met a child and he was just so tender with our son, who was about five at the time. So I brought him home. We adopted him. And there was definitely a, a, an acclimation period for sure. But I just really, I applied all of my canine behavior skills and really tried to gradually desensitize him and used counter conditioning techniques and a, a variety of behavior modification techniques. And 
over time, he really, really responded well. You know, none of these dogs are house trained when you get them. So you have a, in my case with Sammy, he was seven years old. He was in this adult body, but he was a, like a nine, 10 week old puppy. Right. He had never experienced anything. Exactly. And so he lived a really beautiful life. I, the, the, the joke was no one believed he was a laboratory research dog because he had come such a long way. It was so, he was so affable and so funny and so happy go lucky. And I just, I remember from the beginning, just looking at him in awe thinking this animal, I can't even imagine what he went through. And for seven years, he sat in this cage and he could have, and he could have been released and been extremely aggressive and fill in the blank. He could have been X, Y, and Z, and he wasn't. And so he was just a constant reminder of always trying to find the good in every day. And I wanted to make sure that while he was here on earth, that he gave seven years of his life up, I just would, I would always pray that he would be afforded an extra seven years on top of whatever the amount of time he was, he was, he, he, he would have been here. And he was, he lived to be 18. The day I brought him home, I transitioned him. I tell all my clients take 10 days to transition your dog. <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure I was cooking for him. And within three days he was on raw food and he, I do remember his eyes were gunky when I first adopted him. And, uh, he, one of his eyes was a little, um, a little, a little sensitive, probably just from maybe conjunctivitis or what have you. And he thrived. He really, really thrived. And he was a perfect example of what good nutrition has and in store for a body, but also epigenetics, right? We, we all, we all know that, well, the, the choices that we make impact our life. But if you put an animal in a position where they feel trusted, they know they can, they know they can trust you, they feel safe, they're you're mitigating as many stressors as possible. All of those things collectively help and support a dog's health. Do you know anything about his past, uh, about the research or anything like that? No. When so, I have a, I have since Pat Sammy passed, I have since uh, adopted another another research laboratory beagle from a different rescue organization. But no, they don't. That's part of the contract that they have with these laboratories is that they uh, they don't want to divulge where they were from or what t- kind of testing was done be- because th- they do have to protect themselves from any kind of, they don't want riots. They don't, they, and they also, these rescue groups don't want to put themselves in a precarious situation where the laboratories then have people rioting outside of their lab because then what will happen which has happened the labs will 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 break the contract with the rescue group and so we we as a, as adopter families none of us know where these where these animals ever were but i will say we adopted sammy in 2006 and then Finn, who is our, our most recent laboratory research dog, we adopted him in 2019. And he was there for four years in the lab. But the the approach that these, at least the labs that I've had experience with via 
a rescue group, they have put in more um, built in some more socialization aspects to having the dogs at the lab. So this, my, my dog Finn and the other dogs from the same lab, they all were taken out of the cages. They were taken outside. They knew what grass was like. They could go up and down stairs, but they were not house trained. I mean, you can't be house trained if you're locked in a cage or at least 23 hours a day. So they, they are making, they are making progress. And with Sammy, he was in a pilot program and we as uh, adopters, we had to give the rescue group information on an annual or biannual basis on the um, the status of, of each dog. And because they did so well, and particularly Sammy, then this rescue group ended up networking with quite a few laboratories around the country. So rather than the dogs being euthanized at the close of a study, they were then adopted out which made which made a tremendous difference. And so after 18 years when Sammy passed, I just felt as if there was a story there, not just for not just for him as my dog, but it was a story of hope on a dog that that could have it, it ultimately have just had a very horrible future ahead of him and to bring light and to bring a voice to this special community of dogs. And I, I have your book and I'll make sure that we have a link in the show notes for people oh, who want to purchase it because it really is just the story of just embracing every day and living life to the fullest, no matter where you start, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I always think our dogs can be our greatest teachers in that regard. And, uh, absolutely. It's really beautiful in that, in that way. Thank you. Thank you. It, um, you know, if I, my, my intention was if I could give one person hope or, or, or one person just the motivation to inspire them to help these dogs, then I did what I set out to do. And, and, I, and a portion of the profit from the book go to uh, laboratory research organizations that help bring these dogs out of those situations. Right. Yeah. So I'll make sure we have links so everybody can can buy it and help contribute to the efforts. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's called Blessed. And it was, he was, he really was blessed, blessed dog. <laughs> so thank and you. it sounds like you, your family was too. So <laughs> we were, it was, you know, I, I think, you know, when you have these beautiful, magical beings in your home, you, you, you reach out and you go to a shelter or a breeder or however you find your dog and you, you really, you just want them to be your companion, but on a day-to-day basis, the amount of joy and love that they bring you is, it's priceless. And you just want to, you want to reciprocate and you want to pay them back as best as you can. And, um, you know, I, I, I do believe because I've been doing this for so long, the main question people ask me is, how do I stop my dog from doing X, Y, and Z? And I can help them do that. That that really doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a lot of effort. But I, I'm trying to encourage people to shift, to make a paradigm shift to a different way of thinking about training and think of it more. I want the question to be, how do I make my dog happy? How can I get my, how, what else can I do to make my dog happy? Because if you, if you approach it from that optimistic point of view, everything else just 
it just flows. Well, I loved what you were sharing with me about your intake questionnaire and what you think Mm. the two most important questions are. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to share that with us? Sure, sure. So on my intake form, I have... I have a variety of different questions, soup to nuts on just to get a better idea of what people are hoping to get out of the initial consultation. So it might be, you know, uh, house training or puppy nipping or aggression, biting, separation anxiety, what have you. And I get a good idea of what they want by reading the answers that they provide. But I do have two questions on there. My first question is, is what exactly are you hoping to achieve? from working with me or, or, or teaching your dog. And right after that, I have, what is, what is your dog hoping to achieve? And, and I don't know how often people actually pause and take that into consideration. And so I, I hope that by me having that question on there, it will make them pause and make them deliberately ask, wait, what, what exactly does my dog what is he feeling? What does he want wanting out of this? And and then it gives me a good idea of where where are these people coming from and how much, uh, you know, how much can I help them and how far can we get? Yeah, I love that, and I love the idea of you know encouraging all of us to think about what our dog's experience mm-hmm. is like in our home and in, in our lives and. You know, I like that your whole mind, body, spirit type of philosophy and, and incorporating that. Um, it's how I've tried, you know, because of us having pit bulls back when we very first adopted our dogs, uh, which was like 2004, 2005. And of course, I'm the type of person who just wants to know everything about everything. So now that I have this dog, I have, I must know everything. And, you yeah. know, there was a very different conversation happening uh, in that time around pit bulls and a lot of the kind of more alpha based training or things like this. And that just never resonated with me. And and there were times where I felt like, are we doing something wrong? We just want Mm -hmm. our dogs to be happy and live, you know, comfortably. And, you know, like I love the word manners that you Mm -hmm. use because we use that in our house, you know, like you have to wait at the edge of the kitchen for your food and I'll tell you when to go. You can't just run through, you know, we call it like manners around the house. And so, so I really just love getting this type of of philosophy out there for so many of us who have thought for so long that some of the more traditional old school uh, methods out there don't, don't resonate with us anymore. And we want to have this more relationship based, Mm -hmm. you know, whole life holistic in that way relationship with our, with our dogs. So that's why I think it's such important work (laughs) that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I, I can, that really resonates with me what you're saying, because I, I do remember years ago, going on appointments and showing people, I would always say to people, why don't you, you know, catch your dog doing something right. Catch your dog doing what you want them to be doing. You don't have to, this doesn't have to be a, a sectioned off training session. It it can be just embed everything because it's, it's all relationship based, like you were saying. And I think if people ask themselves, you know, what's it, what's it like being my dog, like, or what's it like really being my dog living with me? And I've seen the change over the years go from kibble or actually go from no kibble to just feed your dog scraps, whatever you had in your house to kibble to then you have these, these gourmet types of foods and fresh pet and what have you. And then the raw food came onto the market and And I do think that over time, 
you see a difference, at least I saw a difference from when I was young, dogs were very rarely would you see someone walking their dog on a leash. You know, 40 something years ago, people didn't do that. People had their dogs, they would just walk around the yard or, you know, the neighborhood and the dogs would come back. There was, there was very little dog aggression or dog to dog aggression. Why? Because they were, yes, they were free roaming dogs, but they, they were able to they didn't have stress in their lives. And so over time, when I, when I came onto the, the scene of wanting to work with dogs and um, I, I added the dog behavior, I started seeing this influx with the more people, the more often people became busy and pulled them away from the house, the less time they had with their dogs. And you had this inverse relationship, which was less time with dogs. There was a rise in overexcitement, under-exercised, and behavior issues. And and now in 20, I would say 2019, or maybe even a little bit prior to that, but now we have what I feel is is a is a is a major challenge with dogs living um, and their happiness is the disconnect with these devices. So many people are on whatever the device is, cell phone, laptop, iPad, whatever. And their dogs are right there. Their dogs are, you you are your dog's world and their dog is just waiting. They're waiting for you to pet them. They're waiting for you to talk to them. They're waiting for you to go outside with them. And if you're, they know if you're staring at your cell phone and to me, it's, it's this missing link that is occurring and play is the other component that really is so overlooked and underutilized. And I always try to encourage people, you know, put your phone down and go do something. Just even if you just tickle your dog, you know, my favorite thing that I do with my dogs, not that I would ever videotape this because it would be really (laughs) embarrassing slash hilarious, but I just put on my favorite song and I blast it, not too loud. I mean, not to scare anybody, but I put the music on really loud and I take a little piece of whatever, you know, whatever I have, piece of salmon, uh, apples, whatever. And I run around the house <laughs> and I sing. And that is just such a de-stressor for everybody. It de-stresses me if I'm stressed. It makes me like happy and giggling. And honestly, it is one of the happiest times for my dog. So <laughs> I I just find that, you know, try to play with your dogs more because they would really, really benefit from something as simple as that. It doesn't cost any money at all. I love that. (laughs) So I have to ask, what's your favorite song that you play? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I don't know. It would probably be a Luke Combs song or Eric Church song. Um, Yeah. George Strait. And and that's probably, that's a great song. Um, I'm not here for... um, I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, that song resonates with me when I do that with it, when I run with the dogs or, or dance, I should say, with the dogs, because it reminds me of dogs. You know, they're not, they're not here for a long time, but my gosh, they, they just want to have such a good time. And, and so that, that's probably my favorite song that I love to <laughs> dance with them. <laughs> And so one of the other things I know you've been working on in this sort of post COVID world, everybody returning to the office and 
people have experienced, their dogs are now so used to having being home with their people, dogs are getting separation anxiety. And this has been kind of a trend we've been hearing about. And so you've developed a course about this. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I have. I have. I had a a large um, corporate company reach out to me. uh, It was last summer. And they said, hey, listen, we have quite a few employees from around the world reaching out to our human resources department. Um, at the time, in the summertime, I believe their their return to work was in the fall. So he said, we're, we're, we're trying to come up with, he knew, he knew me for, through a mutual client. He said, I know what you do. Um, and all these employees are reaching out to us. They have dogs there. They have COVID dogs. And they're, they're, they're stressing as to what should they do when it's time to go back to work. So um, it ended up that company didn't go back to work. It was postponed for another, I don't know, eight months or what have you. But I, I, I came up with a, yes, a, a separation anxiety program for people so that they know really what to look for. What are the signs? Um, and, and how do you go about doing some behavior modification that's very generic, but very effective at the same time. And, and I would, I would say it was received very well. Um, but I would say one of the, the common threads among everyone, the people at this Zoom meeting, but also clients when they call me for separation anxiety, is that you think you're doing good by staying home with your dog. And I mean, and wouldn't we all want to do that? We all want to stay with our dogs, but we're really doing them a disservice. Um, the longer you stay with your dog or the less time, in other words, that the less time that you're departing, the less departures where you're not leaving your dogs, you're not you're not giving them any skill set on how to deal with being alone. And so what happens, uh, and this is for dogs that don't even demonstrate severe separation anxiety, but we as humans, we take the most, the most social animal and we immediately desocialize them. And by that, I mean, we bring a dog home, you know, whether it's a puppy or a dog that was adopted. And I don't know, two days, a week later, everyone just scatters and they go to work. They do errands, they do this, they have a party and, and the dog is left with, with, with no skill set. They don't know how to operate on their own. And so that, that's what I did in, in the program was try to teach people how, how do you teach your dog to be an independent and, you know, just be independent. How, you know, you want, you don't want a dog just to sit there and wither away. So a lot of it is mental stimulation games. A lot of it is trying to meet their needs before you leave the house. So it's, it's good exercise. It's definitely proper nutrition because in, in, like we were speaking earlier, everything's connected. So if a dog is being fed adulterated food, and they have anxiety, well, there you have the whole gut-brain axis, and you're you're indirectly fueling the exact behavior you're trying to mitigate. So it, people will think, well, I just need, I just need, I don't know, like a gadget or something to help my dog with separation anxiety. And and it's not, it's not that. It's yeah, maybe you need a gadget like a stuffed Kong, that's wonderful, but it has to be in concert with nutrition. And Maybe maybe massage when you're home and directed exercise and absolutely playing, and and so it 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 was received well and I, I I do find that when the dogs are given an adequate amount of 
teaching when you are home on how to be independent. It helps them navigate when you're gone. Oh, I love that. Well, that makes so much sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you know, you the 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 this one of the saddest feelings is when you leave your home and you know your dog is sad. Right. Right? And 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 I I I try to I try to convey to my clients when you leave your house, you want to have peace of mind. You want to know that your dog is kind of almost like, all right, can you please leave? Cause I, I need to get to that Kong and I need to just chill out and relax. And, and that, that's just going to make things much easier. So it, it's all about, I like to think of things as, you know, training never stops and it's not training 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. Everything should be integrated into your, you and your dog's daily life. So that's how dogs become more relaxed because there's more of an understanding of, oh, I, I see when, when she's at the counter and she's cutting food, I get, I get told I'm good or I get actually even a piece of the meat or the, the apple when I'm not jumping. I get attention when I'm not jumping, which in the human's perspective, it's I want to reward the good behavior. So right. you do things like that rather than always trying to catch them doing something wrong because dogs, dogs are born and the way they go through life is they, they, they want to avoid conflict. And being a human myself, I feel as if a lot of times humans, we take the, the opposite approach. We're more apt to say, stop it. Don't do that. Quit it. You're bad. Why are you, why are you doing that? And, and, and sequester a dog somewhere and they don't learn with that type of interaction. They learn so much better if you acknowledge something, even if they're barking, if they're barking at a herd of deer outside, yes, can it be irritating after a few minutes? But the first couple of barks, it would be so great if everybody could just say, buddy, thank you. Thank you so much. I didn't even know the deer were there. Thank you very much. Great job. You know, he's doing what a dog should be doing. And, and ironically, you will see those types of behaviors quell much faster. Than if we're like, hey, shut up. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. It, it, it's really, it's really a shift that it, it, it doesn't come overnight with people, but it's a shift that, again, it goes back to don't we all just want our dogs to be happy? And I, and I'm not inferring there should be, it should be a chaotic type of environment in the home where dogs are walking on kitchen tables and things like that. There has to be, there has to be some reason of, you know, just be mannerly. We don't want you going in the garbage. And so rather than you go in the garbage, how about you take this stuffed Kong or this, you know, whatever raw marrow bone, you can go hang out with it. And then I'm going to tell you, you're a good boy for chewing on that bone. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, reading dogs are masters of reading body language. Absolutely. And we are not. <laughs> and yes. And definitely not their body language. <laughs> exactly. I was just about to say that. Right. So that is a big, um, component of having a dog, which is knowing how to speak their language, which is using body language. So when I was referring earlier uh, to when I had the two types of classes, I had the group class and then I had the private one-on-one, the people that did the one-on-one, they were more likely for whatever reason, you know, I, 
it, it could have just been that they weren't in a big group of people. They weren't, they were less embarrassed. They were in the comfort of their home, but whatever reason, the in-home private people generally utilized hand signals much more frequently with their dogs than the people in the group classes. And so if you want your dog to listen, you, you really need to speak their language. And, and that means using hand signals. And the second part of that point, which, which you just mentioned, Aaron, is you need to read your dog's body language and what, what, you know, is your dog in a situation we were talking about stress before and mitigating stress, because that is all part of overall wellness for your dog and happiness. And your dog is not necessarily going to run up to you and say, Hey, you know, Tamara, um, I'm not really comfortable right now. You need to know, all right, his, his tail is, is lowered or his tail is between his legs or his eyes are squinted or he's, he's licking his lips. He's lip smacking quite a bit, or, you know, if everything's threaded together, that's pretty good indication. Your dog is stressed. Is your dog hiding? I mean, that's, that's a real obvious one, but yeah, reading their body language. Yeah, they're always talking to us about always. about how they feel, whether that's, you know, physically or, yeah, I, I'm uncomfortable, I'm anxious. I mean, learning about dog body language is like, blew my mind open to, you know, to, to what had been going on right under my nose, you know, for a couple of years before I kind of caught on to everything. And Yeah, it, it makes you think of Dr. Doolittle. And, you know, we, we actually can talk to animals. And I, I, I'm sure you've read her book. It's an older book, but um, calming signals. Yeah, Turid, Turid <laughs> yeah. Rugas's book. Uh, I, it, it's on my reading list for all clients. Um, I don't know if they ever read it, but it's there and it's not a long read. And it is, it is by far my top 10 all time favorite books. That is, it's so valuable because it's such a, a, a unique view of dogs and, and how they interact with, with, with not just humans, but with other, other, dogs. other canines. Yeah. With other dogs in their pack. And the subtlety, you know, of it. Well, I remember after I'd read her book, I had, I had gone to a conference and she had put up a video where there was a video with her in it. I think I don't remember the details, but the fine details. But what she had done was there was a a dog that was very stressed, and she was trying to do just a little, uh, just a little test run to see how yawning impacted the stressed dog and um, the person, the participant kept yawning. And it was, it was kind of funny because you just to see, to see a human yawn repeatedly, it just, it just, it's just uh, so out of the ordinary, but you saw a dog that his stress and anxiety was so elevated. And then to see it dramatically drop by something as subtle as a person that, that, that he knew, but the person in his room, but even if he didn't know the person, just the yawning, it just calmed him down. And by, I think it was a 12 minute video by the time it was over, he was just lying down on the floor, relaxed. His respiration had changed, his pupil dilatation, everything had changed for the better. And so, yeah, if if we can try to just keep that in the forefront of our, our minds to speak a dog's language. I'll make sure we put a link to that book in the show notes too, because oh, that's great. one everybody should have. <laughs> yes, yes. And just a reminder, it's a really short read. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I think so. sometimes when I recommend books, people think, oh my gosh, she just recommended like a 400-page book. I'm not going to do that. But this is easy. You could do it in probably an hour, if not less. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> I could talk to you about this all day. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been wonderful. I, I hope that I, I gave you some some insight into how I how I approach dogs and and the importance of just trying one dog at a time to make them healthier and happier while they're here on on earth. And I'll make sure we have links in the show notes for anybody who wants to contact you or work with you. Okay. I think you're such an amazing resource uh, for, for everybody. And, and I'm so grateful to have had you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I help people from all around the world. So that was the, that the silver lining with, with COVID, you know, it, it really, <laughs> it, it taught everybody that you can communicate with, with the camera and all these devices. So there, there are some good positives with things like that. So I'm happy to help anybody. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for having me, Erin. It was such a pleasure. I had to go and find that song and play that clip for you. It's been on my mind ever since Tamara and I had this conversation a few weeks ago. What a perfect metaphor for life with our dogs. So I also had to share that I've been trying one of Tamara's tips that she shared at my house for the past couple of weeks. The one I'm talking about is saying thank you when the dogs are barking. My dog Penny is very reactive to people walking down the street We also had an incident where some mallard ducks were hanging out in the front yard and that had Nino very concerned. I just always imagine them like, hey, you kids, get off of my lawn. So instead of me closing the front door or just saying, okay, okay, Penny, okay, which was my usual reaction, I have been saying, thank you, Penny. Thank you. And you know what? I really think it's been working. She still barks a couple times, but it's not anywhere near for as long. She doesn't seem to get as carried away as she once was. I really do think that it has been working. My husband, Tim, he's still rolling his eyes a little bit at me when I do it, but I really do think that it's working. And I honestly just love the idea of embracing that energy with the dogs of saying thank you for the alert because I know it makes me feel different and better about the situation and I think that that comes through to the dogs as well. And if this idea of learning our dog's body language is something that's new to you or if you're not familiar with the book Calming Signals that Tamara and I were referring to, definitely make sure you check the links in the show notes. I'll have a link to Calming Signals It is a very short read. You can get it right from Amazon. And there's another book I love too from uh, artist Lily Chin that talks about dog body language. And I actually got that one for a friend of mine recently who has a young son and they've been trying to make like a game out of it where they pick out, oh, the dog is doing this with his eyes or this with his tail or this with his body. And so it's been really cute seeing that. Our dogs truly are talking to us all the time. And it really can improve our relationship with our dogs a million percent when we understand what they've been trying to communicate to us all this time. And I think back to some of the lessons that I learned the hard way as a dog mom in my early days of dog momming, which is almost 20 years ago now. We're just not born with this knowledge and I wish I had known more about it sooner. But I'm just glad I know what I know now, and I always want to pass this information on to any other dog owners who it could be helpful for. 
I also want to make sure that we just geek out for a moment on what Tamara shared with us about the idea of our dog's nutrition impacting their behavior. And you should know that I'm definitely a dog health nerd. I'm also kind of a people health nerd. And when we think about how we as people feel when we eat certain foods, junk foods, have certain sugary drinks, we see it in children, you know, don't give them too much sugar, they'll get all wound up. We see how these things impact people. And it's important that we take this into consideration and realize how it's impacting our dogs also. And when we're feeding our dogs foods that are very high in carbohydrates, foods that get converted into simple sugars very quickly, that this can affect our dog's behavior also. And when you're having certain behavior challenges with your dogs, it's important to look at nutrition as a piece of that. And so I really appreciate all that Tamara brings to the table, to the conversation about that, because it's so important for us to remember. I just love talking about all of these things. And remember, if you want to geek out on all things dog health nerd related with me, check out my second podcast, The Alternative Dog Moms, that I'm doing with dog health blogger Kimberly Gautier. And you should be able to find that wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll have links for you in the show notes for that as well. And of course, don't forget to look for Tamara's book, Blessed, sharing the story of her rescued laboratory beagle, Sammy. And I'll have links to her website too, if you want to learn more about Tamara or how to work with her. And that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here. You can hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. And you can join along in the conversation by following me at Believe in Dog podcast on Facebook and at Believe in Dog podcast with underscores on Instagram. And until next time, this is Aaron Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.